Sonic Statesman.com. Hello and welcome everybody to Sonic Talk Live number 111. That has some kind of numerical thing, doesn't it, Mark? Must be, you know, 111 must mean something special. Anyway, um, welcome to all our roomies uh, in the Sonic State Live chat room. Um, we're up, let's see who we got. Uh, quick name check, uh, Acid, Alfmeister, Azio Head, Audio Nerd, Buddha, Condra, CR78, DMAC Pro, John Bowen. Hey, hello to John Bowen of Solaris fame, I presume that's you? <laughs> yes, it must be. Casey, Kieran K, Lee Kemp in Bristol, Oliver Chesler, hey. How you doing, Rob G.S. Spearsy? That's you, Dave, isn't it? The Circuit Symphony. Oh, Circuit Symphony. He's uh, sent us a wonderful remix. So second of all, I'd like to say hello to my live guests. And uh, first of all, I feel I should welcome back Mr. Rich Hilton, who's been away from us, even though he may not have been away from home. How are you, Rich? Um, very well, thank you, and I've missed you all terribly, so I'm glad to be back. Oh, good. It's nice no, it, it, It's nice when it when it stops, but it's even nicer when it starts again. That's the way I look yeah. at it. <laughs> so how was, where have you been? You've been in Belgium? Oh, we talked to you after that, didn't you? You did your Belgian gig then. Did you have some kind of webcasting kind of thing? You setting up sort of rival podcasts with Nar Rogers? <laughs> there wasn't me setting it up. Uh, I had to get him hooked up in a worldwide webcast of some kind, and then... Uh, I don't recall. That was one of the two weeks. The other one, I just had to work. I had uh, an early day of work I had to start. Oh, bummer. Like you said, it's so nice when you come back. It is nice to get you back. Rich Hilton can be found, myspace.com forward slash Hiltonius. And uh, we've also got hmm, Mark Tinley. We didn't have you last week, did we? Hello, no, Mark. you didn't have me last week. We got you now. You have indeed. Yay! You did a speech last week. Is that right? You were doing some public speaking. Uh, not public speaking. More, much, much scarier than public speaking. I've joined an organisation called Toastmasters, and not only do you stand up in front of people and speak, but they then mark you and give you feedback on because it's you know you stand up in front of a room full of people and speak, and you've no idea how you did, have you? So if I want to bring my public speaking on, this is the perfect place for me to go to do that okay so um i did my icebreaker speech which is the first speech i've done in front of all of these well basically they are all toastmasters so they're all very proficient and very uh experienced public speakers and i stood up in front of them and did my bit and it went very well actually oh cool mark i've got this visual image of these toastmasters all standing there with massive gold chains with their arms folded wearing uh, track suits <laughs> looking at you in a kind of homey style going come on man do your thing <laughs> it wasn't like that though was it <laughs> not quite like that no but uh, it was scary it was quite scary but when i spoke to you in the afternoon i was in a bit of a flap because i wanted to get everything you know organized and right and everything but it it went very well apart from the fact that i nearly crushed my thumb in my um in my music stand which i opened up in the scissor bit Oh. I was so anxious that I forgot to move my thumb and the scissor bit crushed my thumb completely and it went black. Was that actually live on stage, that bit? No, no, oh. that was... It's, it's all good. I've only got nine more speeches to do and then I'll be a competent communicator. Ah, oh, well, you're always a competent communicator to me, Mark. You don't need those fancy <laughs> fancy credentials, but uh, good luck with that. And, um, of course, funnymachine.com is where you can find out what Mark's up to. Also, Asperger Engineering um, podcasts, and you've got loads of stuff going on, so it's well worth going over there and seeing what Mark's up to because he's doing a lot of interesting things. Yeah, please do subscribe to the podcast now because Nick has very, very kindly... Uh, let me put it on his site, which means there isn't an issue with bandwidth anymore. So if, if okay. um, anyone wants to get all of the... Right, but not too many of you, though. All at once. <laughs> <laughs> no, feel free. PJ Tracy, Minneapolis. How are you, PJ? I'm fantastic. Good oh, morning, Nick. Hold on a minute. Emmy-winning PJ Tracy. Good, I'm glad to hear it. I guess um, it's been snowing. Somebody said it's been snowing. Was it you that said it'd been snowing? We have a foot of, well, almost a foot of snow on the ground here. Yeah, so it's uh, a lot of snow. Slippy. Well, last night, my, my wife and I, we braved the snow, and, and we found a, a fantastic little happening that's going on here in Minneapolis that we weren't aware of previously. Um, she started a new job this fall at the University of Minnesota, and so we were on their email list for art events. And apparently every week, there's a group of people that get together, and they, they form a gamelin orchestra which is uh oh, yeah. Indonesian. Indonesian. Yep, 
and uh, it's open to the public. You can go and watch them perform both traditional and modern pieces. And uh, if you are so inclined, you can join the group and uh, perform with them every Tuesday night and learn the gamelan instruments. So uh, when I have a little break in my schedule, I think I'm going to join the local gamelan community. Oh, fantastic. uh, Yeah. Mm. I must admit, every time I've heard gamelan, it always sounds like a terrible racket, but maybe my ears aren't tuned or I haven't listened to to decent quality instruments. I reckon it works a bit like that whole um, binaural uh, brain synchronization thing, because all of those instruments are all slightly out of tune with each other so it sets up all these weird resonant frequencies and then you go into that kind of zend out state when you're watching it i love it there there is a reason for that and that's because uh an entire gamelan ensemble has to be um built from the ground up by one artisan because there is no standard tuning Ah, right. So you can't bring your own instrument, otherwise you'll be screwed. But yeah, like Mark, I, I, I actually very much appreciate that sound. And if it's well-performed, it's, uh, there's something extremely uh, blissful about it. Ah, excellent. Well, have fun. PJTracyMusic.com for all your PJ Tracy needs. Um, and, of course, Mr. Dave Spears from um, probably not sunny, probably chilly Reading area. How are you, Dave? I'm cold. <laughs> I'm cold. Really too. cold. It's like a contest here. How long can you go without putting the heating on? Well, you still haven't put your heating on. Well, no, I got. Well, no, this is a daily occurrence. I've actually oh, got until uh, you know. I got as far as <laughs> midday today. Can I, I just say hello machine. to Number Cruncher because I think I've just sussed out who he is. Okay. Thank you. Well, the first thing I really need to do is um, just in homage to the great man. I need to play this. Once upon a time, not so long ago, there was a little girl and her name was Emily. And she had a shop. It was rather an unusual shop because it didn't sell anything. You see, everything in that shop window was a thing that somebody had once lost and Emily had found brought home to Oh, uh, This will mean nothing probably to the US listeners, but that was Oliver Postgate, who is a legendary figure in the creation of children's programs uh, in the UK. He worked for the BBC for a long time. He died on the 8th of December um, this year, um, and uh, he will be sadly missed because he's got a wonderful voice. He did Bagpuss, he did Noggin the Nog, he did uh, Ivy the Engine, he did The Clangers, uh, more importantly, which um, some of you US people might know. And his... There's something about the sound of that recording that is just, it all, like it's made of wood or something. I don't know. It's very handmade, and um, that was just to sort of, you know, in homage to him. That's, I just felt like I wanted to play it. Does that mean anything to anybody? Mark, I suspect you might have been an Oliver Postgate child. Uh, yes, I definitely was. And uh, actually, the bagpuss thing reminds me of my ex-wife, because she loved bagpuss. I mean, obviously, it reminds me of my childhood as well. I seem to, it didn't, in Bagpuss, didn't they go through the back of a mirror in the shop or something weird into another world? Or am I thinking of something else? No, that was something else. That was... Uh, Mr. Ben. Mr. Ben, yes. But we are alienating all our US listeners by referring purely to this UK, UK-specific stuff. But anyway... Um, uh, just as another aside, a friend of mine went to St. Martin's School of Art, uh, where he... Um, um, he had a, a fun party night with the very same Emily from Bagpuss, and he was very proud of himself for that, which is a total aside and means nothing to anything. But there you go. Just thought I'd mention wow. that. <laughs> wow. That wasn't very reverential at all, was it? We should definitely discuss the clangers as well, actually. <laughs> who's, who's just, who, spoke, who spoke with swanny whistle voices, and apparently um, there's been a lot of retrospectives about Oliver Postgate this week, and there was a thing on Newsnight last night where they said uh, um, he got one of the clangers to say, bugger it, the thing stopped working, in kind of swanny whistle sound. <laughs> and uh, the BBC said, you can't say that, because <laughs> they obviously realised that she was saying something slightly <laughs> naughty, which is, which is quite funny. Anyway. That's <clears throat> utterly brilliant. Isn't that good? Any of the US people, if they type that into YouTube, are bound to find some of it to figure out what we're talking about, aren't they? And either the engine. Yeah. 
genius. I reckon he, he was a shed genius, wasn't he? <laughs> he was, yeah, because he was. He did work in a shed. I mean, basically, he started out working on th- on BBC stuff, and they just left him to it. And he did it all in the shed in his back garden, and he sort of spent a hundred pounds an episode on these things. And so, you know, he he generated a whole genre, and he was a very big exponent. This is what he was saying last night: was it's not the method, it's the content. So it's not what you're, how you're doing it; it's what you're doing, and that's why he got away with it. And uh, I think that's a very good point. I think that's a really, really, really good point. And I only learned last week that the most important thing about a song is the message. And I've spent all my life trying to make cool music that makes me feel a certain way and everything. And I've completely and utterly ignored lyrics for like 30 years. (laughs) And and I I saw somebody perform a song who couldn't play a guitar, who had something to say, and I thought, oh, God, this is just rubbish. And then I just thought, hang on a minute. No, what's, what's he actually saying? And the message was really cool. And I eventually got, by the, by the time he'd finished, I got that songs have nothing to do with the music at all. It's the message. And it was an absolute aha moment for me, complete revelation. So I've got to go back to the drawing board, I guess. <laughs> Start writing some more songs. Yeah. Ah, well, I think that's, yeah, that is a good point. And um, I think one that we can all take to heart uh, when we're playing are stylophones, perhaps. Do you see what I did there? What a great link that was. <laughs> Fantastic. <laughs> I'm feeling smooth today. I don't know what it is. There must be something in the uh, in the air. iStylophone. Uh, I know it's an iPhone app, but uh, it's from a company called Very Cool Software, and it's $5.99, and it's by a chap called Andy Brooks, who, by the look of his bio, used to be signed to Two Tones. So he might have been in the specials or one of those bands or one of the musicians there. I don't know which one he was. Uh, Anyone download this one? Yeah. You did? When you get to their site, it's called Very Cool Software, and in fact, this is the only piece of software they make, so I think that's probably a little bit of an overclaim, but let's hear it. Class, eh? <laughs> Doesn't that make you want to download it straight away and just get on with it? And I did. <laughs> <laughs> did you? <Yes>. Excellent. <laughs> as soon as I saw it was an iPhone app, it was like, yep, yeah, right, go, find, seek, buy, download, play with. Yep, and uh, it's funny, isn't it? Because the stylophone, I mean, for its time, it must have been one of the, the, the first mass-produced and affordable electronic instruments. Or am I, um, am, am I wrong? And it's, and it's being redone isn't it it's been redone i bought my brother-in-law one for his birthday i believe it's now got six sounds instead of one or two i think um yeah but classic and you could get a bass one couldn't you, you could get oh yeah there was that really big one that was cool yeah. the dual manual one <laughs> two pens <laughs> That's a, but anyway um october 2007 um toy company recreation remade it um in conjunction with debrek you're very true by uh originally made by ben jarvis um there's a, a few uh, there's a few other examples of it apparently uh, i've got to play this one because i like this uh, and this is Craftwork used it give you a quick blast oh yeah they were so groovy weren't they Don't know where the bass drum was in that, though. But anyway, that was uh, used there, uh, and also in um, uh, Space Oddity, etc., etc. But was it? Space Oddity, brilliant. Yes, brilliant. Absolutely brilliant. Mr. Waitman. Really? Mm Mm-hmm. But what about Two Little Boys? Did you have that record? Uh, I did, yeah. Junior Hits. Rolf Harris. And did we had the um, the Rolf Harris? There was a seven-inch Rolf Harris record that came with the original stylophone as well, which I sampled to death actually, and used to use samples of Rolf Harris on absolutely everything. That was our thing, Rolf Harris samples. Did he say this? The next sound you're going to hear will be almost unbelievable. Is that what he, he said? Did. <laughs> he did. And he said something like, to play glissandos such as these, you would have to, something or another, I can't remember what he said, the exact thing, but... Brilliant. Uh, something to about play glissandos glissando such as these would take years of study and practice. I think that's what he said. Oh, really? <laughs> Brilliant. But we used to, but we used to like, 
punch a sample of him saying something like that off and then i had all these electric guitar samples on my i had a casio guitar sampler thing that you plucked a string on and it played a sample so i used to do these one pluck lead solos which was all very amusing uh and adam my brother and this guy johnny slut who was originally in a band called specimen and they uh had a club called the Batcave in london many years ago used to change outfits between songs in a wendy house live on stage <laughs> why we never became massive i'll never know but. i don't know mark i mean that just sounds like a recipe for success i P- think it was PJ and Rich, Rich, did you did the, did the stylophone ever kind of? Um, I guess you were had uh, you were exposed to lots of posh synthesizers anyway, so perhaps it wasn't something that you would uh, aspire to uh, owning or having a go at. Or am I wrong? Well, the truth of it is, the first time I ever saw a stylophone, Mark was there. I, I and it was like two thousand and two. This thing completely passed me by uh, until then. And uh, we were in a session in England, and the stylophone showed up, and I was like, "What is this?" <laughs> It's a really well, yeah, they used it on Space Oddity and everything, and, and then I saw them using it, and uh, I got it. But I, it doesn't have any history with me at all, actually. Maybe it wasn't a US thing. Maybe it was a UK and European instrument. I'm not sure. I don't know. Anybody know? Mm, I don't know. It's it was, it was originally made different. in the UK, according to the Stylophone collect, Collector's site. Uh-huh. And I don't know, I don't know whether or not it... It was ever big over here, but my first exposure to it was in the mid-1990s because some guys that had a recording studio that I was working in at the time had one. They're like sort of little transistor radio. Oliver Chesler says, no, we had them in the USA, and by the way, they were selling them at Urban Outfitters a few months ago. I did a gig with a star phone. Really? <laughs> Who yeah, was top was of the my, bill? It was, uh, we were. It was <laughs> one of those sort of terrible college gigs, and I had a Roland SH-1000s, which I'd spent all day tuning, and then some git came in, as, and this was a really funny joke, not, and put a screwdriver in the back and completely detuned it. So yeah. we launched into this track, and it was like everyone's sort of pointing at Dave, the keyboard player. So in the end, we, um, we put the stylophone through the amp. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Got away with it. John Bowen wants to know if there's going to be a G4 stylophone emulation. Uh, <laughs> what, what, what could we call it? Yeah. Um, I can oh. think of a suitable name. Mm, okay, maybe we could. <laughs> or maybe John, you should do a stylophone patch for the Solaris as soon as you as soon as you get God. finished up here. Imagine a polyphonic stylophone. Yeah, this i stylophone thing really isn't going to work, is it? Why? Why? Because, why? Well, if I put this in my iPhone, right? My uh, girlfriend has got a BlackBerry and it's got a really nice little pen and she can draw things on the screen and write and scribble and and click around with this pen, right? I borrowed her little pen to try and do something on my iPhone in a program called iDoodle and it won't take any input from anything that isn't... uh, Is it capacitive, I think? I really? Does that mean you'll have to take a... You have to have to take a pencil sharpener to the end of one of your fingers and just kind of gradually bind it so that it becomes a stylus end. Perhaps it'll be like binding your feet. You'll just end up with an overdeveloped single finger. Actually, I've I've thought of a market opening. Somebody needs to create a a capacitive pen, don't they? So a pen that will work on an iPhone, which basically... Uh, is made of skin or something. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> wear, wear a copper pinky ring, Mark, and then you might be able to do it. Okay. It works fine. Oh. It's brilliant. Uh, I'll turn the volume down on it, but I'm going to take it later. In fact, With the reason pen. I downloaded it, I'm going to take it to my kids' nativity play, and when they start doing all those musical interludes, I'm going to play along. Oh, you horrible. That, 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 <laughs> they won't like that. You'll get thrown out. Yeah, with a bit of luck, I might. <laughs> that's even that's almost that's, that's almost as unforgivable as actually taking a photo at your child's nativity play these days. <laughs> Imagine being thrown out for singing along <laughs> or playing along. Uh, I stylophone um, available now, and it's kind of funny. Oh, there was a funny story actually. Uh, apparently, there's a Doctor Who audio drama called "The Horror of Glam Rock," where a glam rocker in 1974 is contacted by aliens through his stylophone, and playing a certain tune on the instrument summons them to the earth. Cool. <laughs> That's really cool. You like the sound of that? Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. I, 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 I just found that on Wikipedia. I'm afraid I have actually no first-hand knowledge of it whatsoever. That's brilliant. But it's kind of... Let's see kind that. Of <laughs> that sounds kind of fun. At this point in the show, I'd just like to say thank you very much indeed to our sponsors, Yamaha Music Production, who've been with us almost since the beginning and uh, continue to do so. We very much value their input and uh, thank you very much to them. And I wanted to tell you about their new Pocket Track 2G, which is a portable recorder. It's got two gigs of RAM. It's USB. It's got a built-in stereo mic, limiter, line-in. It's also very, very small. It's got a built-in speaker as well. So you can use it for dictaphone, recording rehearsals, recording gigs, backing up podcasts even. Very, very flexible. Comes with a carry case, uh, all sorts of other bits and bobs, USB extension cable, headphones, and a copy of Cubase AI. Uh, I recommend you go and take a look at it. It's a yamahasynth.com forward slash products forward slash pocket track. And track is spelt T-R-A-K. Anybody feeling Christmassy yet? Mm, yeah, sure. a little bit. Yeah. Really? Well, if you're not... Yeah. I think I've got something that's going to put you in the mood. Be ready. I hope you've all got hankies ready, because this is going to make you weep. It's so beautiful. I'm sort of related, strangely, to the stylophone theme, because it sounds in the same tone world. I can't take any more of that, actually. It's a bit unpleasant to listen to. That was on Matrix Synth. That was a YouTube uh, video via somebody called Organ Fairy, who's playing uh, on the background with an SX, Technics SX C600 organ and uh, three Alpha Rex robots, whatever they are. I'm not actually sure um, what they are, but um, that was them playing, synchronised, a beautiful Christmassy kind of thing. So I hope that makes you feel a bit more Christmasly, um, which kind of links into the next topic. That was just an aside, which was um, US and UK number one hits. And I was going to—I thought I'd start with a little bit of a, um, a medley of um, the last few US Christmas hits and see whether anybody thought they were surprising or not. Not terribly Christmassy, I think you'll agree. What happened to the good no. old Christmas hit? That was, um, let me see, I've got a list of them here. The first one was Alicia Keys, 2007, No One. Second one was Beyonce, Irreplaceable. Uh, third one, Chris Brown, Run It, Snoop Dogg, featuring Farrell, Drop It Like It's Hot, which is quite good. Outcast, which is a cracking tune, at 2003, that's as far as I got. And in the UK, what was it in the UK? It was last, oh God, bloody X Factor nonsense. Leon Jackson, When You Believe, Leona Lewis, A Moment Like This, Shane Ward, That's My Goal, and Band-Aid 20, Do They Know It's Christmas. So basically the last four, apart from Band-Aid, well, okay, the last three have all been X Factor hits. What's going on? That's, they time it, don't they? He I times it they deliberately. Mm. This is all part of the big conspiracy. Yes. I think it's quite quite interesting, really. That I, and I'm sure that that must mean that anything that is a Christmas hit that isn't a Christmas song must have been a really big song. Yeah, maybe. Oh, 1978 in the US. Chic, Le Freak, Rich. Yeah. Hey. Cool. So like 19, 1975 in the UK, Bohemian Rhapsody by Queen. Oh, it's a it's sort of mildly interesting reading, but there's not I I because I've got this recollection of there always being some sort of Christmassy record at, at number one at Christmas, but there just isn't. It's a total fallacy. Walk like an Egyptian, in 1986 in America. The Americans don't seem to have very many Christmassy songs at all. No, they don't, do they? I wouldn't mind the points on uh, Slade's Merry Christmas, everybody. No, no, <laughs> or, or Roy Wood. Yes. Wait, how about White Christmas? 1942, 1977, and 1998 in England. Blimey, that's loads, Didn't isn't it? fall on our charts, unfortunately. I can't well, see any... Look, I- look at Slade in England. Uh, Merry Christmas, everybody. 1973, 1981, 1983, 1998, 2006, and 2007. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> Thank you very much. ka <laughs> 
There's, I can't see anything, anything Christmassy back um, in the US charts at all. Oh, no. Silver Convention, Fly Robin Fly, is that possibly Christmassy? I don't know what that sounds like. Not that I recall, no. <laughs> Rich, you're a man of the world. Have you ever been um, forced to play on a Christmas record? Or attempted one? I've never been invited to play on a Christmas record. I, can't, I could see you being very good on a Christmas record, actually. I think you'd be just the, I, just the man. I can definitely shake a set of sleigh bells. <laughs> sleigh bells, they had a bit of a kind of major um, happening in rap, didn't they, for a while? There was a lot of all that um, West Coast stuff. There was lots of sleigh bells in it. I wonder if that's, um, maybe they were feeling Christmassy one day and, the, and they got down with the sleigh bells. Or maybe they just found an S900 sample and just thought, oh, that sounds all right. That sounds more like it to me. PJ, how about you? Have you ever done anything Christmassy? I mean, I'm in a musical style. <laughs> <laughs> never played on a Christmas record like like Rich. I've never been invited to and never attempted to do my own. But while I was in college, I um, nearly put myself through school doing corporate events, being the piano player at different law firm Christmas parties and, and corporate events around uh, around Minneapolis-St. Paul and the, and the greater metro area. And how many times do people spill drinks on your keyboard? Uh, well, thankfully, during those during those particular gigs, I was playing a grand piano provided by somebody else. But uh, if you want me to recount the many times that I've had drinks spilt on my keyboard, we would have to cover the next podcast. Maybe we'll do a new we'll do a show special on that one. I don't know. What about you, Dave? We did talk about doing a Christmas song last year, didn't we? Oh no, did we? Yeah. Uh, how did it go? <laughs> Have you, finished, have you finished it yet? <laughs> it obviously didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh I, I, th- dear. I think I was waiting for your uh, your bit to kick it off, actually. Oh, I'll do the drums then. That'll be easy. Just a sleigh bell and a <laughs> sleigh bell four, and four to the floor. And a finger click. Still something like 140 that. 140 BPM. Uh, we could do a drum and bass Christmas song. <laughs> That'll be better. 160 BPM. <laughs> ah, we could, have a, we could remix um, Bing Crosby and David Bowie, Little Drum and Bass Boy. Oh, hey. <laughs> what do you think? Super. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm there. I'm there. All right, Nick. All smooth. <laughs> That's fantastic. If you're in the room, I'd I'd expect a high five at that point. Oh um, yeah. I'll just have to have a virtual one. I'm going to call my mate in Pendulum and say, "Do this now." You know what? The Circuit Symphony. Did anyone hear the remix? Yes. Anyone hear that? Oliver, Oliver um, from the Circuit Symphony um, actually sent in a remix, which was... Uh, this, there's a lot of music in this one. That's because probably I can't think of anything else to say. But this was great. Check this out. He's done some fantastic stuff. Apparently, it used, um, it used the V-Synth. Checked a, checked a load of samples in the V-Synth um, uh, from last week's podcast. And, um, and put... Where is it? He, he wrote it down here. Uh, used the X24 for the drum program and Juno 6 for the bass. Right. So I'll play a bit of that. It's quite good fun. The speaker in my trousers. So I'd have this huge bulge in my trousers, and then I'd sing into this mic, and then it would come out my pants. Um, discombobulated is my word of the day. Here's a laptop. Look, in the window, it's on the table. Now, if you just snip round the back, you can help yourself. A week now. So I was doing on the table. I've changed my mind on that. I decided it was... Put the speaker down my pants. 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 I'll play the rest of that on the outro, but um brilliant vocal manipulation. That's all um what did he say it was? It was the uh very phrase stuff. I've never played with that stuff. It's you, very you, good. This sounds brilliant because I really like the way that he changed the inflections. A very phrase, sorry. Um, that he 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 changed the inflections in your voice, and there's some stuff with you, Dave, at the end where you're just pitched up really high, and for some reason it That's makes me hilarious. Laugh. It makes it just makes me laugh loads. You keep mentioning the K word. Oh yeah, yes. a, the... pitched you right down. <laughs> absolutely brilliant i'll play it all out later and and i'll put a link in the show notes the whole thing but nice one circus symphony that was a a real cracker and gave me i was really actually quite um impressed by the quality of whatever he's using to manipulate the voice in that way because because uh most pitch shifting or format shifting things 
their own footprint onto things and it's still yeah. and those when he pitched me around a lot it actually sounded like me do, i could do that with my voice and it would sound pretty much the same as that yeah and uh in, and in a way that's very impressive because it means that it's not leaving behind any weird artifacts or anomalies it's it's uh you know what i'm saying yeah no, i've got to get me one of those um circuit symphony says in the chat room v synth gt exclamation mark exclamation mark exclamation mark is that what it was is yeah it? absolutely oh, brilliant and what they no. need to do is license that that uh, very phrase technology into something that we can use so we don't have to buy a roland synth that, that costs two thousand dollars well um, they used to do that didn't they so why you know they did but, but they tended to do it for the pc so why can't i have um uh an exs24 plugin thing what are they called logic plugin oh, i don't know I, I think i think the original um uh i can't remember what the the rack mount thing was that roland did red it was um yeah something varios i think it was called but it didn't mm. it wasn't real time or there was something about it that you had to kind of plot it out first if i remember correctly but that pitch stuff was very impressive yeah, I enjoyed it a lot. Anyway, thank you very much, Oliver. Is is not some of that technology incorporated into Sonar? No? Sonar 8, yes, says Circuit Symphony. So, yeah, that must be true. Maybe, maybe, maybe Why are you try- saying these things? I'm not, I'm not getting this conversation. You're oh, saying in the chat room. The no, chat room that is part I'm, of the SonicState.com. Co- com- 20 minutes ago in the chat room for some reason. Oh, you, you've, you've got to scroll down. Yes, in the live chat room that is fl- the Flash chat room where we've got a whole bunch of people who are joining us in a kind of textual sense on Sonic Talk 111 Live. Uh, okay, right. Um, let's have a look. Ah, Kale Clements, who um, did pass uh, us uh, some great topics a couple of weeks ago, also um, po- piped up with a couple of other ones, which are sort of background things, which was just kind of how did we all meet? How did we come to do the podcast? And how we got involved in our respective musical things, which I thought might be kind of good to get a bit of background. So um, I will uh, go first by saying um, the podcast, I think uh, it was. It, the idea for the podcast came out of just an idea that I had one day. I thought, oh, we should do a podcast. And then uh, I think uh, I started off getting Andy Jones involved and Mark and Dave Spears were my first two. Andy Jones and Dave Spears were the first two guests. Was that right, Dave? I don't know. I think so. It was so long ago. so long ago. And then um, I thought Mark would be ideal for it, and Mark agreed to do it. And then Mark... That was around episode 16 or 17, wasn't it? Was it? Right. And then, Mark, yeah. you introduced us to Rich. Is that yeah. right, Rich? That's right. And then PJ, PJ just came and sort of knocked on the door and said, can I come in? And um, <laughs> and I think I phoned you up, PJ, just to sort of check you out, because I thought you could be just a total net, internet weirdo. And so when I talked <laughs> you were, to you... For, you were looking for... You were looking once he confirmed that worked on a PC, <laughs> and once you confirmed that I was strange as all hell, you... <laughs> you well, you'll do fine. Yeah. And um, non-Eric... I'm trying to think where I met Hans. Was it through you, Dave? I don't think so. I think it was something to do with... He came to Bath um, when he was working with Steinberg, and I met him and... um, I think it might have been Charlie Steinberg, actually, and we had a coffee, and then we just sort of stayed in touch, and then I asked him to get involved. And I think that was right. I think that that's correct. And Richard uh, Richard Evans, who is an occasional guest, he is... um, He's just an old mate of mine. And then who's the other one? Um, John Musgrave, who's not been available for a long time. He um, he was just someone who I met um, at one of these kind of industry bashes and just said, thought he might be an interesting guy to do it. And he was. Uh, and it's a shame that he can't make it as, as often or, well, hasn't made it for ages. But uh, I know he's been busy, which is kind of good. So that's good. So that's kind of how the podcast got started. And then I guess the next quest part of the question was, how did each of our guests get involved with their respective things? Uh, I guess, um, Rich, I don't know if you're, um, you'd like to go first. I mean, how did you get involved with the kind of Nile and Sheik thing? Where did that come back? My association with Nile was as a result of having been recommended to him by New England Digital, the makers of the Synclavier. And there's a backstory to why I knew them. <laughs> I had been trying to get a job with them over a period of a couple of years. And uh, the people in the New York office were very kind to me and l- appeared to like me a lot. But the folks up in New England didn't appear to be similarly smitten. <laughs> so, uh, across the length of many jobs, many interviews across different states at my expense, rather than hire me, they eventually recommended me to Nile Rogers when he ca- called looking for a Synclavier savvy fellow who could play the keyboards. I should also say that my 
Sinclavier savvy at the time was grossly overstated. <laughs> You'd seen one, you mean? Well, uh, well, shortly after I claimed to have experience on it, uh, I f- found uh, two of my best students at the school I was teaching at had uh, internships at the only studio on Long Island that actually had one. And so I lucked up into some time for free on the Sinclavier and tried to sort it out. And then uh, some of my friends at the New York office uh, gave me a few lessons. And uh, then I had like two weeks to get it together and I was off in Hollywood making a major movie. Wow. On on the thing. (laughs) Traveling (laughs) with it, you know, shipping it and all. I mean, you know, thousands of pounds of shipping and stuff. Gee, that that reminds me a little bit of the... um uh, of, the, of my first gig with a, a Steinberg Pro 24 and Akai, um, I got hired. I just bought it and I got hired in a local studio for this band signed to ZTT called Anne Pigal. And I went into the studio <laughs> claiming to know how to operate Pro 24. And uh, I must have wasted so much of their time. I'm ashamed of myself now, but uh, it's not like that anymore. And I'm sure it wasn't like that with you, Rich, either. Well, but- it was, but the guy who was leaving his outgoing programming guy trained me for the first two weeks on oh. top of that preparation that i put in so by the time i went i had a pretty good and i had a really strong background in everything i you know i basically operated everything else so it was i had the background that would get me through something uh, a lie like that <laughs> basically <laughs> but anyway um so uh that's how i met nile and subsequent to that, they started working on a Chic album and reformed Chic, and it was a "Hey Rich, do you want to play?" Well, or "Hey Rich, you want to play?" or something like that. Yeah, and, which you said uh, no, not really. I and then flash forward, flash forward to two thousand and two, where you become involved in working with Duran Duran in England, and huh. so <laughs> and so, uh, and uh, there's a whole backstory to that too because I wasn't really. Uh, I was sort of foisted upon them originally. It wasn't something that they were necessarily looking forward to. And so what's wonderful about that is Mark, who was their guy, and I have become and remain extraordinarily good friends. And it was through him that I came to be on this podcast. Ah, so the circle completes. Indeed. And PJ, how did you get involved in in the sort of Emmy side of thing or the compositional side of thing? Also, Kyle wants to know. Well, um, I've had, it feels like, 10 different lives that are, you know, mu- musical lives. And uh, I went to school for composition, um, graduated in the mid-1990s. And uh, when I got out of school, I started playing around town quite a bit um, in jazz and, and uh, blues bands and uh, corporate bands. Then I was asked to, um, uh, I was sort of discovered by uh, the guys that were in Johnny Lang's band at the time, if anybody if anybody in the U.S. is familiar with Johnny Lang. He's a blues guitar phenom who was discovered at the age of 14 in Fargo, North Dakota. And uh, so I did that for about two and a half years and then uh, opened up a studio with a friend of mine and just did some mixing and um you know, recording of local groups. During that time, I, I fostered a lot of relationships with other studios and, and uh, um, people that were producing commercials and that kind of thing and did uh, spates of those uh, doing commercials and corporate video work and that kind of thing. And I've just, um, you know, continued to foster those relationships over the years. And, and that's how I got involved with the people that I did uh, um, the Emmy spot with, and that was the creative team at uh, the local CBS affiliate. CBS is a central broadcasting system. I think that's our one of our major three networks here in the U.S. And uh, um, on top of that, I do a lot of um, just, uh, I guess, what you would call pure arts composing. So mm. um, a friend of mine and I, we, we apply for, for local arts grants and national art grants every year, and then we do a lot of... Uh, audiovisual installation work for um, museums and uh, galleries and that type of thing. We're doing one this weekend locally um, at a gallery called Gallery 13, where we're showing a number of our animations and uh, interactive audiovisual um, sculptures. So does that mean you've just got an endless round of Christmas, tedious Christmas office parties you've got to go to just to sort of stay in the loop? Uh, no, actually, the, the way that we do that is we throw one here, and uh. I invite... Uh, I invite everyone I know to the studio. Ah, I thought you were going to say, no, not after last year. Nobody ever invites me again. But uh, Yeah, exa- exactly. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm the guy with the lampshade on his head. <laughs> uh, well, just like I say bye-bye to John Bowen, who's got to head off to a meeting, an important Solaris-related meeting, uh, where, and he says, uh, see you uh, in Nam." So he's going to go back to the US tomorrow. So he'll be in Booth 1211 in the basement area, Hall E at Nam, where we will be there. So see you later, John Bowen. Thanks for joining us. Um, Dave, how did you get into what you do? How did you get into the sort of the, the, the music, the software instrument thing? Where did that come from? I had a software company with uh, somebody else in the, during the 90s. And uh, through that person, I bumped into Chris. And I'd been at school with Chris. We were in the same year. And in fact, we both moved schools at the same time. So it was kind of a strange reunion, although we weren't mates at the time. Um, and we did that fat boy MIDI controller with this company. That was a kind of graduation from software to hardware. Um, the problem with the with the just having a you know a controller was that it was very difficult to get it into stores and stuff because they wanted something to show you know yeah. that it works with. Doesn't so we did it noise. with Reason, and we always wanted to kind of build a software synth. This was around the time of kind of Bitheads and the Coblo Nine Thousand and stuff like that. And um, I think probably more in uh, 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 so eventually it culminated in Chris and I kind of. Um, going us going off uh, ourselves and starting GeForce Software, um, but what was probably more interesting is how we decided to go into business together. We had an office in Henley with the previous company, and we looked, and a mate of ours came down, a front of house engineer, and he was looking out the window, and he saw a girl with rather large breasts walk past, and he went, "Oh, look at the size of those!" And Chris and I kind of went, "Oh, it's obvious, isn't it? You know, I mean, it's just what you need is a girl walking past with a decent ass because." <laughs> It's a pretty rare. It's a pretty rare thing around where we live, and we both looked at each other and went, "Ah, well, you're either a tits or an arse man." And we both went arse men, and we went, "Ah, oh, we better go into business together then." <laughs> <laughs> and that was it. And we started GeForce on April the first, which I think is reasonably pertinent. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Very romantic. Very nice. Romantic. Oh, very, very. That's beautiful. That's touching. That is beautiful. <laughs> But the amazing thing with Chris and I is that we'd both been out on tours and we both, you know, we'd kind of led this completely parallel existence, having, you know, been at the same schools and knew each other loads. And it wasn't until we kind of got together and started going, oh, so you were in No Miss at that time. Oh, right. So I was I was working in the studio and we were kind of like, well, how come we didn't bump into each other? It was very, very strange. Well, Mark. How about you? How did you get into the Duran gig? Um, is also something that uh, Kale wants to know. How did I get into the Duran gig? Um, I don't think my story is massively different to anyone else's. Uh, obviously, I was—I'd got into the Adamski gig first, but uh, me and my brother were sort of uh, in competition to see who could get the highest up the charts first. And he ended up getting a number one single, so I ended up as his tech. Um, and through that connection, I was the person who knew how all the computer stuff worked and all the synthesizers and everything and used to advise him on, you know, Adam, buy this, this is good, get this synth, blah, 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 and formed some relationships with some shops, one of which was Thatched Cottage up in Royston. Oh, yeah, I remember them. That's where I got, where I live that's now, where I got Pro 24. And then when Adam's career died down a bit, I was still making music as a programmer and buying various synths from Rob. And I used to buy things on a sort of a month trial basis, try them out for a bit, decide something that didn't do something I didn't like. And it got to the point where I'd ring Rob up and I'd say to him, all right, mate, what's this new emu thing like? Um, does it, you know, have will MIDI controller 10 pan instruments without having to re-trigger them? And I'd ask him all these complicated questions and he'd say, look, I don't know. I'll just send it to you. You play around with it. If you want it, keep it. If you don't, send it back. Right. And then they started ringing, uh, ringing me up and saying, look, we've got a studio installation in London. What do you know about Max? This has gone wrong and that's gone wrong. Can you go around there and fix it? And I didn't know anything about Max and much the same as everyone else here. I went, yeah, I know loads about it. I'll go and fix that. So I went, I ended up being their MIDI troubleshooter for London because I lived in London and they were in Royston. So one day Rob rings me up and he says, what do you know about the Emulator 3? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah, I know it. And, of course, I'd never even seen one, right? <laughs> and he said, um, can you get a sound out of the Emulator 3 into a K2000? And I said, yeah, no problem. And he said, right, well, it's for Duran Duran. This is the address. Go to this guy. Go and, you know, uh, go around there. What do you want to get 
paid for doing this and i think i said something like 75 quid or something so i turned up at warren's house knocked on the door was point, uh, pointed in the direction of an emulator three i had to ask him to load the sound into it that he wanted to transfer because i couldn't actually <laughs> load the sound and didn't know how to do it oh. um, and i plugged the emulator three into an s thousand and sampled it and then put the S1000 samples in the K2000. So job done. I mean, I probably should have transferred it via MIDI and kept all the loop points and everything, but it worked. I did it in a way that worked. And then Warren said to me, so you're coming back tomorrow, man? And I'm like, why? What's happening tomorrow? And he goes, oh, we need somebody to set the keyboards up for top of the pops. And I'm like, okay, I didn't know anything about this, but yeah, sure, if you want me to come back tomorrow, no problem. And this went on for about a week. Then somebody turned around to me and said, so you are coming on tour with us, right? And I'm like, oh, and Dave, you're going to love this as well. At the end of the day, we were in no miss rehearsing. And um, I'd arrived in the morning, set all of Nick's keyboards up, done everything, you know, done the key tech routine. And at the end of the day, I put all the keyboards back in the boxes, plonked them on the floor, walked out the building about four o'clock, way before the truck had even arrived. <laughs> turned around to the sound guy and said to him, Right, the keyboards are there. I'll see you tomorrow. And he looked at me like I was an alien. But I didn't know that I, my job was... Nobody outlined or defined my job to me. And said I told to you, me, you had to load them into the, into the you're truck. You're meant to be loading the thing. <laughs> so from that point on, I kind of got away with avoiding the back of the truck. To be, but um, And then I just constantly kept saying to them why do you guys record all your stuff in studios you know you're, you're on tour for a year and a half let's make an album now we can make the album in hotel rooms you don't have to go into a studio i can set computers up we can do it with computers you don't have to use tape let's just program it all and eventually they listened to me and and uh towards the end of that first tour that i was on they set me up in uh, a hotel room in paris during fashion week a very nice hotel room actually i had a suite and i had a whole load of equipment in the suite room and then i was staying in 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 the bedroom part of the suite and it just kind of went on from there really um but uh, you know I, I nobody defined my job it just kind of unfolded these things t tend to get created around you know what the opportunities are aren't they it's it's it is very a very fluid kind of thing I mean, I think I was the guy that could program things that was standing right next to Nick when they needed to go in the studio. And instead of going, OK, we've got to find and hire a programmer, he just turned around and said, well, Tinley can do it. And that was that. I was in. I was just in the right place at the right time. Yeah, that's often the way it goes, isn't it? Well, thank you very much for sharing that, folks. And uh, I hope that that's uh, of some help to um, Kyle. And, um, and that's that. Hey, Nick. No. Yes, PJ. I, ha I have a bit of an aside here I forgot to mention when I was sure. um, giving my spiel. And this might be a comment on the way that uh, uh, music is being delivered and discovered these days. Um, the, the spot that I did that, that won the Emmy Award um, was for a, for a local CBS affiliate, as I've mentioned. It's been airing since May. And the brief was that they wanted to have a piece of music that sounded like it was cut out of an ex a one minute excerpt from an existing pop song since may i just got a call yesterday from the creative director at, at the cbs affiliate and they said since may they've gotten hundreds of phone calls and, and emails asking what is the song and where can i get it ah. so they want they want to actually finance me to write a single around that piece of music and release it cool and yeah, and I, I think I'm going to do it. I mean, for, for a little while I thought, well, why would I do that? That's not really a direction I think I personally can sustain, but I think it would be... Well, just find someone else to find someone else to front it and, you know, do what everybody else does. <laughs> and have ah, to go on the that's, road. Yeah, that's a good idea. Excellent. Yeah. Oh, well done. Cool, thanks. That's great news. Yeah. Um, I think we're probably heading towards the final topic of uh, this week's podcast, number... 111, and uh, this one was submitted by Dave Spears, and I'd just like to play it. It's actually uh, an excerpt from a Radio 4 programme from a chap called Clive James, and I've sort of cut it down to kind of try and uh, get the gist of it across, so I'll just play this. And now, indeed, a point of view presented by Clive James. Piles of old newspapers and magazines, stacks of box files containing folders, containing memos about the necessity to buy more folders and box files, Hundreds of books uselessly hidden behind hundreds of other books. A bag of random receipts 
that my accountant might have found quite useful in their year of origin, 1998. But let's start with the desk. Little of its surface is visible through piled notebooks and shuffled papers. But observe this vertically striped earthenware mug full of ballpoint pens. If the phone rings with information I must take down, I reach for one of these pens and find that it does not work. Anybody recognise that about their own workspace? I, was, I, I found that, uh, that I actually was quite... I, I shared a lot of empathy with that particular article. It goes on and on. You know, it's, it's general sort of the chaos of the workspace. And uh, his sort of idea is, you know, if I've got all these kind of opinions that people are supposed to listen to, how can anyone take me seriously if basically my office is a dump and I don't know where anything is? And he also has a couple of crack, a great quotes. There are books I know I own, but I have to buy them again because I can't find them. And obviously there's, there must be musical uh, and studio equivalents of the same thing. Rich Hilton, I, I suspect you're probably kind of quite a neat and tidy and guy uh, or, or Nile is because you've got clients in but in your own space how do, how do you fare in terms of the tidy stakes and do you think it makes a difference I'm probably not like that guy <laughs> you can see my desk uh, particularly at Niles I try to keep it pretty you know good looking because you never know when somebody's coming to take a picture over there but uh, yeah over here it's pretty my desk is organized in a pretty consistent manner and things don't linger very large or very long and i'm not really like that i'm a little more obsessive i think than that but where do they all go to rich do you just discard them or do you have another place that nobody else can see (laughs) that is like that no i'm not the junk drawer guy in this house believe me i'm not it's not the way i it's not the way i operate nor am i overwhelmingly neat either i mean there are much more fastidious people than me but uh i'm really not a junk drawer guy do you think it makes do you think it makes a difference because well there is a thesis that sort of says the chaos around you kind of helps you focus in some respects because if you spend a lot of time wondering where everything is whereas you know you've got a general sort of melange of uh of stuff you kind of roughly know where to look for things well, I think it makes a difference in as much as it affects a certain person's creative atmosphere in a certain way, but it doesn't necessarily make a difference from one person to the next. Mm. That's a point. Dave, you, you brought this up. I, I suspect there must be something um, in it that appealed to... <laughs> that you recognised, possibly, in yourself? Yeah, a lot. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I kind of... My life is sort of organised into various piles of stuff, and... Uh, my room is just, I mean, you've seen it, it's pretty much disorganized chaos at the best of times. And what I find is I complete a project and then I kind of think, right, I'm going to tidy everything up and everything's going to be just so for the next project. Although it never really seems to work that way. But it, this sparked a huge debate, actually, amongst uh, the gang here. And uh, with one of our programmers um, suggesting that if there was a linear correlation between mess and creativity, he would be Einstein and Mozart rolled into one which i thought was reasonably pertinent (laughs) (laughs) well i i I can speak for myself in that my desk is usually fairly messy but it does tend to i have little clear pockets because i have to film quite often uh, and if i have to film in my desk i just move everything ever so slightly out of shot so i get these kind of mounds of things that just kind of reach to the edge Um, but you can see little clear spaces that i just make sure i keep the shot very tight on it so you can't see all the mess which is really sad, but I'm yeah, I'm, I, I'm not. <laughs> That's actually, hilarious. I'm not a very neat and tidy person. When uh, I lived with Gina in Shepherd's Bush, the um, landlady, um, we were going to move out. The landlady asked us if we'd take some photographs of the flat so that she could put them online to rent it out again, right? And I literally scooped everything into one corner of a room and then took a photograph then scooped it back the other way and then took another photograph. So I've got two angles of the rooms to make it look like everything was tidy and i've just posted a picture of my current work environment on in the chat room actually oh which is and really to do this podcast today i just i'm i've got a huge dining table in the in the dining room and it was absolutely you know we have piles of stuff on it we can't really eat as a family see i I I think that take everything and shove it all to one end and when it starts falling off the other end i just get a box and put it in a box but i know where everything is i promise you if you ask me to find something i could find it relatively quickly it's when the cleaner comes and tidies up that it all starts to go wrong. So I, I do know what's going on. <laughs> and this is exactly my point. I think that 
people, the truly creative people have to have this air of chaos around them in order to create something really quite magical. And that's what came out of our debate today. You think, I wonder. Well, you know, I mean, if you, if you think about, you know, a lot of artists that perhaps some of us have worked with, they are completely chaotic. And actually, sometimes when they get their lives organised, the, kind of, the muse disappears. And I think that manifests itself. You know, in the past, we've always been, kind of, you know, the artistic guys have always claimed that being creative in an artistic way is, uh, is, a, is a kind of burden and you have chaos surrounding that. But I think in terms of people being generally creative that there is an air of chaos about most of, uh, certainly other parts of their lives, some of it. Uh, PJ, how do you feel about it? I mean, I, I guess um, you strike me as you might be kind of fairly neat and tidy if you've got clients coming in and stuff, or am I wrong? Uh, I, I can be. Uh, I vacillate. Uh, right now the room's fairly neat, um, and it's never it's never a pit. I'm not, I'm, you know, I'm never like that. And I'm not a junk drawer guy either. I try to, uh, I try to, prune you know as much as i possibly can and get rid of things that i don't need or at least organize them as well as i possibly can but uh that a lot of that's out of necessity just because i need to know where something is when i need to go for it otherwise i'm not going to be able to find it because of my visual limitations sure um uh all my chaos is on the inside (laughs) (laughs) i like that (laughs) i completely agree with dave i think that uh there's there's something about at least as far as the the truly creative people that I've been around that I really appreciate, there's something that's uh, uh, chaotic in there. Some, some timing issue that's off or, or different than, than everyone else I know. And I, and I, I, you know, I'm not, I'm not claiming to be one of those people, but I definitely, I definitely feel it. In new scientist magazine last week, they've been testing people with autism and people with autism's brains respond a split second slower than people who don't have autism. So I wonder if this, you know, and some, and I'm convinced that Prince, for example, is autistic because, because of some of the things he does socially and because of his sheer brilliance as a musician. And I wonder if, yeah, I mean, and I also, conv- I mean, I'm on the autistic spectrum. I don't know if any. I mean, you all know that. I don't know how many of the listeners know that. But I'm convinced that the autistic spectrum goes way beyond the age of diagnosis and that the autistic spectrum probably goes into what people would consider normal. So I wonder if part of that autistic brain might be, you know, part of this whole uh, conversation. Yeah, yeah, you might be right. I mean, from, from my own point of view, there's a sort of um, by having uh, I have like stuff around the place, and I don't want to uh, the stuff that doesn't get put away is because it has some relevance to the kind of cloud that is surrounding the stuff that I'm up to at the moment. So if I put it away, then it won't be in my mind anymore, and I can't necessarily remember that I had to do something that was something to do with it. At least that's the way I tend to look at it. So there's this sort of chaotic cloud of stuff around, and when I look down and I see something on the floor that's... (laughs) God, I'm painting a terrible picture, but it is actually quite messy in here, and always is, and I, I, I am quite ashamed of it. But I do work on my own, so I suppose it doesn't really matter too much. But and it, I've well, dined out on your story of having your studio robbed. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yes. I have to tell that story. I went to Australia um, and I got back and I was I was just not really with it at all. And I got a phone call uh, at three o'clock in the morning, which I may well have told if I've told this before, I probably have. I got a phone call saying, um, oh, you better get down. There's a terrible mess. And there's a policeman in there. So I walked in. And he said, oh, you know, you better prepare yourself for this. I walked in and I go, no, no, that's fine. That's my mess. And he thought that somebody had broken in and trashed the place, but it was actually just my terrible, terrible habits. I'm not entirely sure. I'm not entirely sure how Jane puts up with me, to be perfectly honest, but I, I think I'm trained in a home environment. All my mess, anything that anything that's at home, Jane says, what's this? And I go, yeah, that's something that I need to have about the place. So I just bring it into the studio and put it on a surface somewhere so that I can kind of keep my eye on it. Uh. I don't know, yeah. Yeah. It, it is strange, but I do feel that it's good to have all of that stuff around. It's like stimulus, external memory or something. I think it was Nietzsche who said, one must feel chaos inside to give birth to a dancing star. Hmm. Yeah, I like the sound of that. Yeah, and he had syphilis. So. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> I'd just like to say, I haven't actually got syphilis. That explains it. <laughs> yeah. That doesn't Explain- prove anything. 
And I'm sticking to that story. <laughs> but I do have to say that the most disorganized place that I've ever been to was Number Cruncher's house, if he is who I think he is, uh, where there was no room to sit anything, to place anything. I'm sure that's changed now, uh, and I'm sure he's going to correct me in the chat room. Uh, well, funnily enough, there is a series um, uh, in the UK, isn't there, of people who have this sort of compulsive, you know, they have houses full of junk, basically, and they get people to come in and clean them out, and it's a really painful and emotional experience for them a lot of the time but it's sort of this there, there seems to be a lot of people um maybe it's just society in general it's like a, a an antidote to the organizational stuff that we all have to do you know that people just like to have this sort of chaotic spaces that they can inhabit i don't know i'm uh, i'm rambling now and uh, i can see that it's quarter past five which means we've been going for a good hour and a quarter so um i think that will probably have to wrap it up um so i'd like to say thank you everybody in the chat room uh, i noticed that i put a little clock on the uh, on the page that shows how long it is until the podcast comes um which um certainly made things a lot easier for me because then people know exactly when we're going to be live so anyway thanks for hanging in there thanks for joining us uh, thank you very much everybody and also to my guests in um in virtual space who have joined me uh, down the wires uh, let's say thank you to rich hilton thank you very much thanks good to have you back myspace.com forward slash hiltonius i expect to see the place cleaned up by next week Nick. yeah i'll take you a picture <laughs> maybe before and after uh, and mark tinley um who I, th I feel is a kindred spirit in the kind of messy environment um thank you for joining us this week and i hope you can find your way out of the room and don't trip over anything <laughs> i've got to find somewhere to put his tea in a minute <laughs> on his knees in front of the telly about, i didn't answer the question about three did i uh, at the beginning of the podcast oh no. i'm going to go back to three quickly and three according to alistair crowley is the only number with a beginning a middle and an end uh, two has a beginning and an end or it might have a beginning and a middle and no end four has a beginning two middles and an end or maybe it has two beginnings a middle and an end <laughs> or maybe it has three beginnings i could go on but apparently three is the only three number is the magic number no more no less it's the magic and number 111 yes one plus one plus one in Hebrew numerology adds up to three. Thank you very much. Mark Tinley, funnymachine.com, aspergeneer.com, podcast galore. Aspergeneering.com, I'm sorry. And uh, podcast yep. galore. Go, go get them. And Thank you for having me, and you're welcome. Uh, thank you, Dave Spears <laughs> from g4software.com. I didn't give you a .com check at the beginning. Makers of fine musical instruments. Thanks for joining us, Dave. Thank you very much. And can I say... Um, Get well soon to Number Cruncher. Yes. Anybody who's ill, which is seems to be about 30% of the population at the moment, get well soon. And PJ Tracy from Minneapolis, Emmy-winning PJ Tracy. Thank you for joining us too and sharing your inner thoughts and stuff with us. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's been a fantastic week. Thank you all. And let me just say that three shall be the number of the counting and five is right out. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, everybody, go tidy your rooms right now. That was Sonic no Talk way. Live 111. Put the speaker down my pants. 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 Are you eating onions? You know, turning your It's just, just really kind of quite relaxed. You're throbbing, you're throbbing, you, you, burst with your throbbing hands, I suppose. You're throbbing, 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 you're
Put the speaker down my pants. 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 Uh, I'm doing 